Audi-I-O-F-M. It's been a long time. And uh, today, luckily, uh, well, this is your host, Kiefer. I assume everybody listening to this knows that. And today, I was able to get Rocky corralled for a podcast, so he's on. Hey, Kiefer, how's it going, man? Long time. Yeah. When when was the last time we did a podcast? I don't know. Probably, it's got to be at least a year, right? Oh, I would maybe say longer. at least. Yeah, maybe, maybe longer. Maybe we've been talking about doing a podcast for a year and we just haven't done it yet. Well, I know for a fact that's true. <laughs> it's, it's been a long time. But... I thought we would cover, and I can't believe I'm still covering this, that it still needs to be covered, but I thought I'd do one last stab at COVID questions because even though there are vaccines out now, there's even more misinformation and bad information and misinterpretation of statistics than at the beginning. I mean, it's just incredible. So I thought maybe we could clear some of that up so that people can make a more informed decision even if the decision is still not to get vaccinated at least they can do it in as informed of a manner as possible yeah certainly i think i have that discussion with patients on a daily basis i still have a quite a few patients that are really hesitant or just absolutely will not proceed with the vaccination so i mean I'm I'm by far a, not an immunologist, but certainly I've been treating COVID patients for the last, what, 18, 19 months. Um, my wife works in the ICU, so, you know, I hear everything that's going on from a critical care standpoint. So certainly my views are probably skewed just because of my experience and what I see on a day-to-day basis, but I can certainly try to help. Yeah, well, how is the uh, basically hospital capacity there in Phoenix, is it? like overtaxed or just holding its own? Yeah, currently it's not really overtaxed. Um, not as many COVID patients in the ICU. They're, they're getting a smattering of them, but it's not like they're, you know, we're not, it's not like it's being, it's not like every bed is a COVID patient. So um, the, the bad thing about it though, is that there are a lot of younger patients actually ended up in the ICU, um, which is kind of unfortunate. And, you know, as I talk to patients, I tell them, you know, I, I know that the big argument is, is that the mortality rate is not high when you look at the numbers per se. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but the problem is, is that it really kind of is Russian roulette in terms of who gets really sick and who doesn't. I mean, certainly there are predispos- predisposing conditions that are going to make it more likely for you to get sick. Uh, diabetes, obesity, you know, chronic diseases. But, I mean, the number of healthy, young people ending up on ICU, on the vent, dying, it still happens. And so, you know, it, and it shouldn't. So uh, that's kind of what I mean by the Russian roulette. And so, and yeah, ma- the majority of people will either have a mild case or just kind of have a bad, really flu and go on their, go on their merry way. But also there's that percentage that have, you know, kind of long COVID symptoms that will go on for six to 12 months. I've got patients that haven't been able to taste or, or smell for the last year. So, wow. I mean, you know, so, you know, no one's really talking about the morbidity or the complicating factors that happen after infection. They're really focusing, at least when I'm seeing on social media, um, you know, they're really focusing on mortality. Um, so, you know, well, I, yeah, they, can... <laughs> well, they go back and forth. They either focus on mortality or they focus on the infection rate. 
and, right. and they don't make a distinction. Right. It's like, oh, my gosh, you know, why are infection rates so high right now all around the world and particularly in countries that have pretty good vaccination rates like Serbia isn't great, but 60 percent of the population is inoculated. And right now, COVID infections are the worst they've ever been since this started here in Serbia. But the flip side of that is hospitalizations are way, way down. Right. So <laughs> that's a good yes. thing. Yes. Yeah, so, yes, if you get the vaccine, you can still get infected and you might still get sick, but you're not going to end up in the hospital and you're not going to end up dead. I mean, I, and, I think and, and that's exactly what the vaccine was meant for. It's meant to prevent severe disease. It's not necessarily meant to prevent, you know, a, a contract, you know, contracting the virus. Yeah, that's and, it, exactly what I had said in the Telegram group. It, it was never designed to stop the spread. I mean, you can hope for that. But even when Pfizer originally released their information, they they were very clear in as sly of a way as it could be, but it, it was still pretty clear that it was a vaccine against COVID, and COVID is the grouping of symptoms. They never once made the statement that it was a vaccine against catching SARS-CoV-2, and and I know that's a bit misleading on their part, but it it was true. Yeah, I mean, and you know, let's take a look at two other vaccines. Let's look at the chickenpox vaccine. Does the chickenpox vaccine guarantee that you don't get chickenpox? No. <laughs> you can still get chickenpox if you're vaccinated against against it. But if you are vaccinated against chickenpox and you contract chickenpox, typically the cases are the the symptoms are very mild and you recover from it very quickly and it's not like the old days when we were growing up where you have to be at home for 10 days scratching your skin it's crazy yeah that was funny and you know i i never caught chicken pox as a kid you know you should get your uh you should get your your vaccination because chicken pox um varicella pneumonia in adults is nasty yeah. well that actually. was the first thing i did because the vaccine did become available when i graduated high school and that was the first thing I did. I actually went on my own and got vaccinated for oh, chicken good. pox. Yeah. I mean, I, I was like, why would you mess around with that stuff? Yeah. Um, I think the other example I kind of talk about is the polio vaccine. So, you know, what's the fatality rate with polio? It's like 98%. It's it's not fatal in like 98% of the population. So yeah. the you know so the same argument with the COVID vaccine. Well, you know, 99, 98% of people are not going to die from it. So why should I get it? Well, then don't get the polio vaccine. But do you want to catch polio and <laughs> have the problems that you can get with it? I mean, I yeah. have a, actually have a I have a pretty large collection of post polio patients in my practice, and it is not. It's, you don't want polio. <laughs> oh, really? I I didn't realize you because in the U.S. there hasn't been a case of polio in since 19. 60 oh no 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 1954 i think was the last natural case of polio in the united states yeah most of these patients are like in their you know late 60s or like 70s now okay wow so but you know that's the other argument you know are you not going to get the polio vaccine you're not going to die from it <laughs> right 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 <laughs> so. although so that was one case and this is where i i think vaccine science can be somewhat confusing and convoluted because 
you know, the polio vaccine actually in, in recent decades in the United States, the oral one has been outlawed. You can't administer right. it anymore. And that's because about one per million people who receive the oral vaccine, usually males, could would contract polio. Right. It was but, an oral attenuated one. Yeah, correct. But the injection is zero. Like nobody has ever there's apparently the incidence is so low that, you know, it, it's not a concern. Yeah. So the, yeah, so, the injectable one is inactivated polio vaccine. Correct. So they call that one IPV. So that's a case where, yes, you can say, OK, one case of polio per million is way too much when we have a vaccine that will produce no cases, period. And so, you know, then we have some sensible conversation around, okay, it's not worth the risk because there's an alternative with no risk. And and I see people trying to have that conversation here. It's like, well, you know, there, there's some risk with the with the coronavirus vaccine, so I should just not get it at all. It's like, okay, there is some risk with the coronavirus vaccine, but there is no option that has no risk. That's true. I mean, and, then, and I look at I like the getting the infection is not necess- is certainly not risk free. And if we look at like the original SARS um, infection outbreak that happened in China, a majority of those patients ended up with pulmonary fibrosis and pulmonary lung chronic, you know, lung disease. Yeah. My fear is is that in 15 to 20 years from now, we're going to see an exponential growth in pulmonary disease in terms of fibrotic disease and patients requiring an oxygen and not being able to breathe because of the infections that occurred. And that's the thing that nobody's talking about. <laughs> yeah, well, we don't have a tendency to think very long term like chickenpox. I got vaccinated immediately when I could. My sister opted not to and caught it naturally and got really sick. But on the other hand, she also later down the line got shingles. And that's, you know, a consequence of a potential consequence of just getting chicken pox naturally instead of getting the vaccine. Like I have almost no chance of getting shingles. It's almost, you know, incredibly unlikely. But, you know, people don't think that when they take their kids to go catch chicken pox from other kids, they're not thinking, oh, well, when my kid's 50, they might get shingles and not be able to walk, go to work, lay down in bed. Loser vision. <laughs> yeah, you know, <laughs> wild stuff like that. That's all. <laughs> yeah, so they don't think about how how the virus could affect you down the road. And and that's what I was trying to explain to people in the Telegram group as well. The mRNA vaccines, like I've said, it's a new technology, so I can understand the fear of it. But the MN, the mRNA vaccines cannot cause an actual infection. So Correct. anything that happens in your body is the work of your body. You know, it's your own immune system doing it. So it's going to be temporary. And they're finding that with the myocarditis that everybody's concerned about. It uh, I pulled up the figures on that so I could have the incident rate. Uh, let me see if I can find that. Uh, yeah, here we go. I know it's it's something like basically 
da, da, da. Let's see. So from the M mRNA vaccines, there's about two cases per 100,000 in young males, especially under 30 years of age. But they resolve within five to 10 days. Whereas if you get COVID, your risk rate is. It's higher. <laughs> oh, it, your, your risk rate with COVID. Yeah, is let me find it. Yeah, unfortunately, I didn't memorize all this stuff. Your risk rate is of COVID is. Um, it's. Oh, they do this one in percentages, so it's, I can't just quote it off the top of my head. Uh, 2%. So it's. 200 per. So it's a factor of 100. Yeah. It's a factor of 100 and. It doesn't resolve within 10 days. They're seeing this heart inflammation last for more than a month. Yeah, so, and I'm sure the part of that is the inflammatory response to the infection as well. Yeah, so, you know, people in Telegram, they're using those kind of common talking points of, well, you know, I don't want to risk myocarditis. And it's like, well, you're, you have, if you're just assessing risk, then you would take the vaccine. If you're taking everything else out of it, politics, whatever, talking points, if it's just purely risk-based, you would take the vaccine, no questions asked. You know, when you have a, a hundredfold higher chance of, of long-lasting heart damage, I mean, we don't know exactly how long, but a hundredfold higher chance, I, there's not even, there's no argument you could make for this. Oh, no, no, you know, I'll risk the, hundredfold chance of long-term heart damage yeah it's i mean i think part of it is a lot of this has been politicized as well right so people well, are using talking points to you know what for that's whatever, whatever their motive is you know yeah that's what's interesting is i you know every once in a while i still chat with people from the south florida in particular that i used to work with who have literally injected steroids that they filtered <laughs> down from cattle implants that they did at home. So like really sketchy shit. And they're not taking the vaccine because they said, I don't know what's in it or what it'll do to me. And that is such bullshit. That is complete bullshit. They are doing it for some other reason. If you're willing to buy cattle implants and melt them down, filter them out, and then inject the leftover fluid that you dissolved in oil yourself into the muscle, then why the hell wouldn't you take a vaccine shot that literally billions of people have had at this point? And haven't caused any real, any significant statistical prevalence of issues. I think I have my next Drake meme. <laughs> the vaccine with him holding his hand in front of his face. DNP, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that's another thing. You know, those guys have taken DNP. They, you know, one dose of DNP, if you're highly sensitized, can just kill you. 
you'll just right. take it and you're dead. And they had no problems doing that. I'll be honest, I had no problems doing that. I've done I've done DNP before, and I realized that that first dose might kill me, but I still did it. So, and these people had the same mindset. So it's like, why are you so scared of this vaccine? And if I can keep the conversation going long enough, it's usually down to some sort of ideology. It has nothing to do with the vaccine. It has nothing to do with the fear of the vaccine. It has nothing to do with, you know, their freedom. It always boils down to these ideological talking points. And I, I think people just need to be honest with themselves. Is that why you're not doing it? And for some other people, is that why you're so gung-ho to do it and so gung-ho to try to force other people to do it? Is it because you know everything or is it just because you're you're following some ideology blindly? Yeah, and I'm not one of those providers that, you know, yell at patients or tell them, you know, well, you're make, you're, you really should get the vaccine. We, I try to have an open and honest conversation with them and try to give them the, the information in an um, unfettered manner so that they actually have the, the, the knowledge base and then make an educated decision. But I, I can tell you probably 99.9% .9 of the time I've never actually made uh, someone change their mind. Um, I've had patients who have delayed getting the vaccination and now they're getting it now, which, you know, and that's fine. You know, you had to, you know, maybe they had to come to their own self-realization that they were going to go ahead and proceed with it. But, um, yeah, those that come to me that haven't been vaccinated and don't want to get vaccinated, there's very little I can say to change your mind. And I just kind of try to give them the, you know, I just educate them as much as I can. So, yeah. Um, and, and, and that's ideological thinking. And I think, we're all guilty of it in some sphere, but I think people should at least acknowledge it and be aware of it. Just say, look, part of part of my identity has turned into this one political group, and that's why I'm not doing this. And if I'm being honest with myself, I should look at that. Is being identified with this one group causing me to make bad decisions? And I'm not saying not getting vaccinated is good or bad. I'm trying to stay neutral in this because my opinion on the matter is, like, everybody should just get the vaccine so we can just get this shit over with because governments and health officials are just too – have too much hubris to ever admit that, hey, look, we just have to live with this whether people get vaccinated or not. Right. I mean, I'm in the same boat. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that that's what it comes down to because I've said this multiple times. Um, in the Telegram group that if you, you know, very early on when this first happened in my podcast, you can go back and listen to them. I had talked about, look, if you just model this in a very basic way with a toy model of epidemics and you look and see what would happen if you did lockdowns and then opened up and then tried to do lockdowns, you would actually increase the prevalence of the of the pandemic for potentially years. And that's just like my little toy model said, if you did that, you're going to see a waveform in infections, and this is going to go on for multiple years. And the same toy model would say, well, if you just let people get sick, this should be over in, you know, anywhere from six months to nine to 12, you know, a year still was on the long side, but it, it would basically be over. The only country that did that was Sweden. And if you look, they are the only country that had a single hump of infections, and then it tapered off, and they've had minor deviations ever since. Even now, 
every just about every country in the West, Eastern Europe, Western Europe, United States, uh, Israel, all of these countries that had high vaccination rates, uh, Chile, they're having a, a massive um, surge in infections. Guess which is the only country which isn't? Sweden. I just gave you. Yeah, Sweden. <laughs> and and they're still doing nothing about it. You know, they haven't even pushed their vaccination drive that hard. You know, so there's a lot of reasons for people to be upset, I think. And there's a lot of reasons to not trust the media because of the political polarization. And I understand all of that. But none of that has any bearing on the science that we can extract from all of this stuff. And that's what I, I hope we can at least illuminate some of that in this podcast. Like people asked about the vaccines in pregnancy. They asked about the myocarditis, which we just uh, covered. Uh, they asked about how which vaccine they should get, mRNA or deactivated virus. Um, you know, they asked about all these things. And it's amazing to me how much confusion is still there in a subject that's really not very confusing anymore. Yeah, I definitely agree. I mean, I think now people are making a big ordeal about the booster shots for the for for them as well now, and trying to twist and turn everything that we you know know about these vaccines. And honestly speaking, I think that if I recall, um, they were recommending a a longer interval between doses. Because mm-hmm. I think the response rate was better, but I think just from a public health standpoint, they wanted to try to get as many people vaccinated as fast as they could, and so that's why the intervals came at three and four weeks for uh, Pfizer and Moderna. Yeah, so. well, it reminds me of the hepatitis B vaccine. You know, you get two shots pretty close together, and then six months later, you get the third. Yeah. And I think for the varicella vaccine I had, I had two shots and then a third. Yeah, the, there's actually a new Hep B one out now. It's just um, two shots, actually. Oh, so nice. One. Yeah. I've never gotten the third one. I've gotten the first two three different times. <laughs> <laughs> and I just always forget to get the third one. I assume I could be protected, but there's also a pretty good chance I'm not. So I, one of these days I should do another battery. That or just get a tighter. But even then, if you've had four different immunizations for Hep B, even though you didn't complete the series technically, you should be good. Yeah, well, that's what I was thinking at this point. They were all free, so it wasn't, you know, no skin off yeah. my back. Yeah. And, you know, people are losing their minds on the whole vaccine mandate thing. And I'm like, you know, where were you when they mandated flu shots for healthcare workers? You know, <laughs> I mean, yeah, you're well, going to pick and choose which one you're going to get upset about. <laughs> Well, I saw a news clip and it was perfect. They they had a person, you know, complaining about the COVID vaccine. They said, oh, you know, this is fascism. I can't, you know, they can't impede our freedoms like this, blah, blah, blah. And then they pulled a clip from the 80s when seatbelt laws went into effect. (laughs) And the people said the exact same thing using the exact same phrasing and you would not have known which one was which because neither of them actually said the vaccine or said anything about seatbelts. It was all about this is fascism. How can they, you know, impede on my freedoms like this? 
And, uh, you know, it was funny to me how similar the situations really are. It's just, you know, people, it, it's something different that people aren't used to. You know, people are used to all the normal vaccines, so those aren't a big deal. And, you know, this one, I understand it's a unique situation in history and that these vaccines were rushed through in a sense, although coronavirus vaccines and this mRNA technology has been being worked on for a decade. Um, yeah, you know, I, it, I think I think people don't realize they, they were working on this because of the original SARS vaccine um, yeah. infection. Yeah, exactly. So. And and that was my skepticism. Like they hadn't had a successful SARS vaccine in a decade. So I was somewhat skeptical that they would be able to get a vaccine for this. But it's because they had been working for a decade that they were able to produce one that was effective at all. I've seen the seatbelt so. clips. I, w- um, I was rolling on the floor because of this. I mean, you could, like you said, you could just replace seatbelt with COVID vaccine. And it was like. It's the same thing. Yeah, they said the exact same thing. It was amazing. I was like, oh, my gosh, this is ridiculous. And now people put on their seatbelts and never even think twice about it. Although I really hope the coronavirus thing doesn't turn into a yearly vaccine shot. Yeah, I you know, I know Moderna's working on a combo flu um, um, SARS vaccine. Um, oh I don't know. God. I don't know where that's at. But, yeah, I, I I'm, I don't know. We'll have to see. Time will tell. I mean, well, if they do, I'll tell you the country that will make a windfall of profit from it. And that's Mexico. Why is that? Well, so MIT developed a nasal spray technology for introducing mRNA vaccines like several years ago, but nobody wants to use it. So they leased the patent to a Mexican company to develop a nasal spray coronavirus vaccine, which is supposed to be more effective because it's introduced to the lungs Mm -hmm. and not injected. And if that happens, oh, my gosh, that's going to be a windfall. You don't have to get a shot at all. You can just go in, go buy your your nasal spray, do it, and you're done. Yeah. So... Which, I mean, I guess I would be okay with if I had to do nasal spray once a year. That's pretty easy. But, and people, I, it, it's funny because I know people, people on Telegram have been putting their opinions up, expecting my endorsement, you know, in, in both directions, vaccine and no vaccine. Because, and partly the no vaccine, because I'm, I'm not in favor of the flu vaccine. And again, it's just looking at the numbers in the 1980. The inoculation rate against the flu per capita was, um, well, sorry, it was about 20% of the U.S. population. That was it. By 2010, it was around 70, 75% of the population. So, so that's a big increase from 1980 to 2010. Per capita, the number of deaths hasn't gone down. Per capita, the number of work hours lost from flu and and mild pneumonia symptoms, which they lump together, has not gone down. Prevalence of flu infections has not gone down. So that's why I, I mean, looking at the numbers, I am very skeptical about the flu vaccine, especially when in 2008, 
when all a lot of companies were in the red because of the housing crash, two companies that were in the black were Walgreens and CVS, and it was specifically due to selling flu shots. I did not know that. <laughs> yeah, so there is a shit ton of cash. Yeah, they spent hundreds of millions of lobbying dollars to make it legal to be able to give flu shots at CVS yeah. and Walgreens. It, and it, it's a pet peeve of mine because when I was in private practice, like I would get my flu shots like a month after CVS and Walgreens would get theirs. And I was just it was so irritating. Yeah, well, that's because there's so much money in it. There's billions of dollars a year in flu shots just in the United States. So you could understand my skepticism with the flu shot. There's been no evidence that it's done anything over the last 30 years. I will say, though, if you um, the one exception I would make to that rule would be that there have been several studies showing that if you have coronary heart disease, if you get the flu shot, you're 20 percent less likely to have a cardiac event in the next 12 years or next 12 months um, if you get the flu shot. So certainly there are exceptions as a rule in terms of what conditions a patient may have. But again, that's kind of a, a finite case of patients. That is an excellent segue into. <laughs> well, no, it's an excellent segue into a lot of the prophylaxis and alternative treatments what well, we'll call them alternative in some places they're mainstream but like hydroxychloroquine you know for example some uh, initial studies came out that were very promising one that was super promising the date that was in the lancet and that data came from surgisphere which turned out they just made up all the data and so ever since then hydroxychloroquine has had a terrible reputation and heterogeneous population studies have shown that it could have some benefit, it might not have some benefit, and it might actually make some people more sick. But what they found, there's been a recent study where hydroxychloroquine does actually have significant effects for people with diabetes. And so when you can isolate a population that you understand why it works for them, and you realize that in some places with a high prevalence of diabetes is where they were getting the positive study results, then you can start to have a better conversation about, okay, when, when should you take hydroxychloroquine? I would say if you're the average American who is obese, then yeah, maybe hydroxychloroquine is not a bad idea once you get sick, you know, because you're probably pre-diabetic or diabetic. Although, you know, you're still looking at small percentages of benefit. There's benefit, but it's small percentages. And compare that with the vaccine. There's small downside, but very little chance of getting really sick. And I think that's, it, that's an excellent point, actually, making a comparison between those two interventions. Yeah. Yeah. And. And you also have to think about, I mean, hydroxychloroquine is an antiparasitic and it has antiviral activity. And the question is, well, how does that work? And it's because it's a significant cellular poison. And that's why hydroxychloroquine can cause phototoxicity and photosensitivity because it's killing new, new healthy cells, too. You know, it, it's, it's a cellular poison. So... You could take a vaccine that's not poisoning your cells. It's getting your body to do what it does naturally to, to heal itself. 
or you could risk getting the virus and then on top of it take a drug that's killing healthy cells in your body when you need those the most i mean so so again which which gamble do you which which of those situations do you want to gamble on and and the same with ivermectin you know we can move on to ivermectin but i'll let you make commentary on hydroxychloroquine if you want i you know i'm not trying to defend the use of hydroxychloroquine i'm just saying it's not so absurd as people try to make it out to be and it wasn't as absurd as people had pretended it was when you know the former president mentioned it and then all of a sudden it was the worst thing in the world yeah, I think that uh, – so it's interesting. Initially, gosh, back in December 2019, mm-hmm. as we started seeing this develop in Wuhan, China, and I actually dug into the literature. And interestingly enough, back in 2003, 2004, when, when they had SARS, the original SARS um, uh, outbreak, they actually used chloroquine. There was actually mm-hmm. um, studies in literature with chloroquine and um, – they didn't. I don't think I didn't see it with hydroxychloroquine, but they they were using chloroquine, which is often used as a, a anti-malarial if you're going to certain parts of the world. Yeah. And so I I thought that was interesting, and believe it or not, I actually went out and got a prescription for chloroquine. It's still sitting in my cabinet, untouched. Never well, took I, it, but. <laughs> well, yeah, I got hydroxychloroquine here when I got sick, and I took it. Um, so. I think the difference is, too, it is safe to take, you know, as an anti-malarial, but you had to take much higher doses were recommended from from the studies that did show effect. Um, And and that can be dangerous. You know, people people just I don't know. What's the idea? It's like, oh, well, if I take a pill, it's safe. But if I get a shot, it's dangerous. Yeah. I think that, um, well, I mean, all the talking points is hydroxychloroquine. It's been on the market forever. It has such a, a big safety profile, yada, yada, yada. But I think one thing that it, this hysteria around hydroxychloroquine also created was a, a side, um, unfortunate side uh, negativity, was that there are a lot of patients who use hydroxychloroquine for, like, rheumatological diseases. And unfortunately, mm-hmm. because of that, uh, what happened, I mean, they weren't able to get their medication, I mean, they had problems trying to get their medication for their, you know, lupus or their, you know, that. So I think that was another thing that was unfortunate that as people try started hoarding it, um, you know, the people who really needed it um, couldn't get it. So, yeah. Yeah. And, and this isn't an isolated case of, you know, there we're still exploring hydroxychloroquine. And, and like I said, you're taking a very powerful antiparasitic and you're taking much larger dose dosages than we see in those safety profiles so you don't know what that's doing and you know it can cause permanent heart damage you know people are worried about what i said for sure yeah yeah so people are worried about you know temporary heart inflammation from the vaccine when they'll take other things that can cause permanent organ organ damage and you know again like what what are you willing to gamble with there's this great book um see i know i have it on my kindle so i can just pull it up here it's a book everybody should read uh, especially those who aren't very good with statistics which i have to say are almost all epidemiologists (laughs) um 
Well, you know, here's the funny thing. You know, in epidemiology, they deal with data and they deal with larger and larger data sets. And, you know, they pretend that if they have more and more people in this data set, it gives them a better ability to prescribe medications to an individual. But statistics doesn't work that way. The larger sampling you get, the the more the better you describe the group, but the more and more people you put into that study, you lose any kind of predictive power for an individual. And the more data you have, the worse that gets. So it's this complete reverse mentality. Like, yeah, we, you know, we have all these people in these studies and and that's just like simple mathematics of statistics. If anybody's taken mathematical statistics, they know about entropy and statistical curves and they know how the entropy increases as you add data. Even though the curve becomes more refined, the ability to apply that information to an individual disappears. Um, So that's why I said, like, even epidemiologists do not understand the fundamental basics of their most prevalent tool. The only the only epidemiologist I've ever talked to who understood the entropy problem and then the problem of taking that data and applying it to an individual, the only epidemiologist I've ever talked to who understood that was a plant epidemiologist uh gareth something he has he has an entire book on plant epidemiology he is the only one i talked to who understood that and that i could have a conversation about it with that's 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 amazing (laughs) isn't that scary yeah it's like and, and i mean i only know it because i took mathematical statistics in college you know i just did it for fun um so it makes me what it, it just it terrifies me when I have these conversations with people and and it's like and, and he you know he it, we had a big conversation about it and he he's like that's the great thing about plant epidemiology is that it's more of a closed system to begin with which also causes problems because you know because trees don't usually just pick up their roots and move to a new location when another tree moves in fully grown he's like He said, you know, that's a huge problem in population studies, observational studies. And he's like, you know, we don't have to worry about that in the plant world. You know, it it was just he had such insight into the mathematics of statistics and what they say. And I've never talked to anybody in health epidemiology who had any kind of insight like that. Yeah, I I think that also when when it comes back to hydroxychloroquine, (laughs) <laughs> I mean, there <laughs> that there are so many studies that are like observational. Um, they're not, you know, controlled. Um, you're getting variable results, and it really further muddies the water. And until you actually have a, a a good study to say, okay, yeah, this is definitive, and it was large enough. And um, but yeah, I, I, in terms of epidemiology, you can spin it any way you want, right? It's the same thing you can do with statistics. I mean, essentially. Right. Yeah, or inter- as well as mis- as well as misinterpreting them. Yeah. And and this will tie into ivermectin here in a minute, which is why I wanted to bring up the uh, understanding statistics and what they mean. 
But the book I was talking about is called, the title is How Risky Is It? And it's by David Ropick. And he does this amazing job of just comparing statistical dangers of different things. And the things that people are scared of never happen. Whereas the people things never, the things people never think about are the ones with really high probability of killing you. It's a great book. I wrote it down. I'll read it. I'm going to put it on my list. Yeah, I, I send you a link to it. But that goes into to ivermectin because that was like tons of people. I I remember this person I hadn't talked to in two years uh, when, when COVID – it was earlier this year. I think it was back in um, January of this year or February of this year. I got – uh, a WhatsApp message, and I don't even use a WhatsApp very much anymore. I have it installed because some friends are are still on there. But I got this message, and I, I hadn't talked to this person in like two or three years. And he's like, "You need to get, you need to do a podcast and talk about how effective ivermectin is and how it can cure <laughs> COVID and like all this stuff." I'm like, "What are you talking about? I hadn't even heard of ivermectin yet." And he goes, "Oh, there's all this research and blah blah blah." And, you know, I and, you know, in the Telegram group, there's a lot of people saying why it's the media being dishonest about ivermectin and saying it's just a horse dewormer, which they are correct. It's it has legitimate human uses and it is used. And that's very disingenuous that they do that. But there are quite a few studies on ivermectin. But when you look at them, they're not actually that great like there's this um, they're not <laughs> yeah there's i mean they're worse than some of the subsequent hydroxychloroquine studies that have come out and um, there's this one and you have to keep some of these things in mind this is from the from uh, i'm trying to find the the journal name I, I can't even find the journal name easy. That's oh, the Asian Pacific Journal of Tropical Medicine, and this study is out of India, and they did a systematic meta-analysis, and they said, oh, there is some benefit to ivermectin, but at the end, it's like these results should be interpreted cautiously as these trials had significant shortcomings. So another paper, and let's see. Well, well, there's two. Uh, I want to find the more pertinent one. Dun, dun, dun. Not it. Oh, uh, this this is actually a letter from some researchers who had done another meta-analysis. And they made the point that when they were doing the meta-analysis and they were trying to look for studies that had, you know, were ethically done, were done in a controlled setting, were blind, you know, all of those things, out of 15 studies, they could only find four that met that criteria. And of those four, the populations were so dissimilar that a meta-analysis actually increased the unreliability of the results and they do they did this great job in this letter of explaining how a meta-analysis done on 
on papers that are not not correctly done themselves or have other deficiencies in their populations or other things that it's like comparing apples to oranges and you if and you're looking for a banana it's like well yeah obviously like there's no trend there's the trend in this data isn't there but you know what we saw was a lot of fruit and bananas are fruits so therefore you know and, and it was just a great analogy i thought it was a good read and and unfortunately, that's where most of the ivermectin papers are. They're they're unreliable, and the uh, meta-analysis of the papers shows that there's as much harm as there is good, which is a sign that the answer is I don't know. Yeah, and you know, there I actually had read one. I had seen a review on a paper that when they looked at the the data set. Um, it was like a, a little over 100 patients, but if you looked at the data set, it was like the same three, 20 or 23 um, points of data that was just copy and pasted into this yeah. data sheet. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. that was the other issue. I think it's some of the, the, the studies of that were clearly either made up or fraudulent. Yeah, and – and like it, you know, this paper pointed out, there are very few that are good studies worth analysis. And when you put them together, you just can't say anything. And you can say that before you even put the papers together. You're like, okay, I, I can do a meta analysis, but the results are going to be that it tells me nothing. Uh, and people who don't understand data or statistics or how these things work can just see some other meta-analysis say like, oh, look, they did a meta-analysis of 15 studies and got positive results. Therefore, ivermectin must be amazing. And it's, at the moment, ivermectin is in the same category as hydroxychloroquine. Like, we don't know. Sometimes it shows benefits. Sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes it shows increased mortality. I mean, we just don't know. But again, it's another powerful anti-parasitic. I would expect high doses of it to cause damage in anybody, period, whether they have coronavirus or not. Yeah, I mean, at the doses that they're actually recommending, for sure. Correct, yeah. And and, and let's just take a step back for a second. Uh, who was the football player who got sick? He'd originally said he was immunized against COVID, and he turned out he lied. Aaron Rodgers of the Green Bay Packers. Yeah, there you go. So let's just take a step back for a second. He said once he got COVID, he called Joe Rogan to get medical advice. Right. I saw that. Let's, let's digest <laughs> that for a second. So I've listened to Joe Rogan's podcast, and I will say this. He definitely is an intelligent individual. He asked some really good, insightful questions during some of his conversations. But... The highest level of education he's ever had is high school. He does not have the experience with any kind of scientific topic or the data to understand how to interpret any of that data. Why the fuck would you go to him for medical advice? That's a good question. I mean, <laughs> yeah, also, let's just. He's also the person who took an antibiotic for a viral infection. Too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And like I said, I'm I'm not I, I acknowledge that, you know, he's very insightful when he with some of his guests, you know, in ways that I wouldn't expect. But 
he is not a scientist and he doesn't even have the minimum level of exposure to understand any of this stuff. So I don't know why the hell anybody would call him up for medical advice. Yeah, it's beyond me, especially especially an athlete of Aaron Rodgers' stature who is, you know, probably one of the greatest to play the position. And, yeah. you know, you, you, when millions of millions and millions of dollars are on the line, both not on an individual basis, but from a, you know, uh, an organization basis. That that that's that in and of itself is uh, mind boggling that that's that's what it came down to, <laughs> including yeah. his advisor, Joe Rogan. I know I, there was a Big Ten study actually that showed in older males being infected with coronavirus was four times more prevalence of long term myocarditis in male athletes than the average male. So he's at even potentially higher risk by getting the virus than from just having gotten the vaccine. Yeah. So I I think we've covered a lot of really big, big questions. Um, Although somebody said, should we assume that the Pfizer vaccine is garbage because of the... Hold on, I pulled this up too so I could have all this. Um, because of the Ventavia scandal, you know, um, have you heard about that? So I've not. When, yeah, when, Fi- when Pfizer was conducting trials of their vaccine, they distributed it around to different companies to do it. And there's this big Ventavia scandal, which is a lot like Surgisphere. Um, it was. Their test facilities were in Texas. They basically made up their data. They had really sloppy lab reports. Uh, one of the one of the doctors, you know, blew the whistle on it. Said, "Man, you know, they did everything wrong. Their data was forged. It's completely garbage." And so now everybody's using that to say, "Look, oh, Pfizer, all of their data is bad. How can we trust anything they said? We don't know what the efficacy was." Well, if you look into it a little deeper, which I just happened to do. Pfizer contracted 153 companies, well, 153 facilities spread across different companies to run the trials. Okay, of those 153 sites, three of them were run by Ventavia. And since this scandal has come out, the other sites have been audited and found not to have the discrepancies that Ventavia did. So... So the question is, as a scandal, is this really a big deal for people and their confidence in the vaccine? And, and the answer is no. You know, it's three out of 150. And the others have now been audited because of this. And, and that's kind of how science should work, right? You find out one scientist or whatever did something shitty or shady, and then you go audit the other results that back it up. Um, so, so again using this example of oh all the data was forged or whatever no two percent of the data was bad so 98 percent of the data was good you know we can still have confidence in their initial trials and although i didn't really say at the beginning of this podcast um i actually got my third dose of my pfizer at the beginning of october so i mean so i you know 
So Did I just, you ever I, catch COVID? I've not. Oh, well. I've been pretty, you know, I've been in, in honestly, I haven't, I've probably like through March and April of 2020, pretty much stayed at home the whole time and didn't do mm-hmm. anything. But then like from May on, um, I, you know, I, I just, it's all, I always tell patients, look, it's about risk mitigation. Nothing's a hundred percent. But as you layer mitigation um, behavior, it's going to add up, right? So, you know, initially I, we started going out to eat at restaurants, but we just sat where we can sit outside, right? So mm-hmm. the data for getting infected outside is, you know, it's really low. Um, so we did, we were going out probably once or twice a week, but we just sat outside and ate. Um, and so we just did things that were outside. And honestly, I felt really comfortable doing that based on, you know, what we knew at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, I've, I can't tell you how many patients I've seen in the office that had COVID. I tested them. I mean, you know, I, you know, essentially wear an N95 mask when I see any, you know, any patient that's coming in with upper respiratory symptoms and we had, um, air, um, air filters in our rooms early on as well. So we tried to make sure we were, you know, filtering the air and decreasing the number of aerosol droplets that were in the air. So honestly, if people like, and, and I know there's this whole thing about masks as well. And I, I think that again, it comes back to this, you know, how many things are you doing to mitigate? Are you distancing from people? Are you wearing a mask? Are you in an outdoor environment? Yada, yada, yada. And as long as I think you're doing those things, I think you're pretty safe at, you know, not contracting this virus. Um, I've traveled, you know, as we talked about, I've traveled to Europe twice already and, um, it's interesting. And again, um, uh, like I said, I think that, um, three things that have helped me probably not get the infection. Number one, I was vaccinated. Number two, I try to mitigate my risk with behavior. And number three, although I probably don't have much, you know, solidified science on it i i take certain things you know i take certain supplements that i think that potentially may have benefit but have really really low down risk downside risk so i think those things those three things and, and you know i try to eat a good diet i try to stay low carb that's that's the that's the fourth thing i'll add in there so so i think those things those four things that really kind of helped me not get covid and i'm glad i mean will i get it eventually and who knows yeah but well, um, that's why I wish they would quit calling them breakthrough infections for people who had vaccinated and got and catch the virus. It's like it, it's not a breakthrough infection. It's a, it's a normal infection. Yeah, I, I don't like that term either. Um, but uh, yeah, for sure. So and have I had patients who are vaccinated at COVID? Yes. Um, you know, and it's it's funny that, you know, you actually have a vaccine now that's FDA approved. But the treatment with monoclonal antibodies is still under emergency use authorization. So I have a lot of patients that are not vaccinated. They get COVID and they're more than willing to do the monoclonal antibody therapy. And I'm like, well, if you're willing to do that, why wouldn't you have gotten the vaccine? Because <laughs> that's one yeah. of the arguments, right? It's un- it's it's not approved. And then, you know, then, the, you know, that gets approved and they kick the can down the road for other reasons. So, right. But I think that's one of the things that the monoclonal antibodies have really been a game changer for my patients. They've done, I, I've got a lot of patients, I, I can get them on board as early as I can. They do much better, they get better faster, and they don't get as sick. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's one thing that I think uh, I try to do for all my patients if they end up, if I can get them early enough. Nowadays, people are doing home testing. So if they do a home test and they're positive, they might just stay home and not let me know. And I don't find out until like day seven. I'm like, oh, you should have told me I would have gotten you yeah, an infusion. So yeah. Well, there's those new drugs now that are being touted, uh, antivirals against coronavirus. 
Yeah, I think the Pfizer one's in the FDA right now for approval. Yeah. So, so hopefully that'll help as well. I mean, I don't yeah. know if people will be, you know, I don't want to take a pill, but oh, no. um, people are the pills too new? I don't know. What they, yeah. It, right? Yeah. You can see the stuff they get the vaccine, right? So. Yeah, actually, they'll probably go for the pill because then they can say, well, I'm not taking the vaccine because, you know, I'm going to take the pill. Yeah. Yeah. Whatever. It's you funny, know, you mentioned Aaron Rodgers, and I was just looking online, and I forgot about he, he, his reason for not his behavior was the over 500 pages of research that he had. <laughs> it's like, yeah. it reminds me, it reminds me when I see parents who don't want to vaccinate their kids because they did their own research. And I know, you know, I'm, and again, I just, I tried to talk to parents. I'm like, well, that's awesome. You did your own research. Could I take a look at it? Because maybe I'll learn something. Uh, and 20 years of practice, there's not one parent come back to me and bring me back their own research. <laughs> yeah. No, it's always bullshit. Yeah. Well, I so. told you the partner I had in the supplement company, the the one who, you know, basically destroyed the company. You know, he would do that all the time. And he would tell me something that was outrageous health wise or some crazy thing. He's like, well, I, you know, I researched it. I'm like, well, where did you research it? You know, can I see? He's like, well, I read stuff on the Internet. I'm like that's not research he's like what i you know i found so many pages and so many sources i'm like well what were the sources were they medical journals like what medical journals were they and he's like no you know i just found all this information it's just it's on the internet and i spent hours researching this i'm like oh for fuck's sake <laughs> yeah i was listening to joe rogan the other day <laughs> yeah yeah i mean that's that's the level of uh research these people do i mean a lot of this Everything involved with these things is, I mean, you have to have a vast amount of experience with a lot of different subjects and you have to understand how they're working. So, you know, in one of my early podcasts is like, you know, if you want to have a decrease in your viral load, you should be on a ketogenic diet before you get sick. And if you get sick, you know, because you have a downregulation of cell proliferation, normal cell proliferation proliferation of a download regulation of mTOR and if cells aren't pro- proliferating they're also not proliferating the production of viral infections and there are studies where animals on ketogenic diets have much lower viral loads and and so they don't want to take the vaccine i understand and they'll take these other drugs well those drugs work the same way as the ketogenic diet they decrease the amount of healthy cell replication but the way they do it is by killing those new cells as they replicate ivermectin included ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine and these other anti-parasitics so you're getting the same effect by destroying your healthy cells that you could get by just being ketogenic or of course you could get the vaccine and lower you know the vaccine Regardless of, oh, is this thing amazing or super effective, we do at least have enough data now to know the mRNA vaccines significantly decrease every risk associated with catching COVID. Period. So if this is just risk assessment, purely risk assessment, no politics, no ideologies, then you would just get the vaccine by default. And if you got the vaccine and you ate low carb, that would be even better. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and if you've been infected with COVID, 
they are finding that the mRNA vaccines, I'm, I'm kind of focusing on those because more studies have been done on them and the mRNA vaccines cannot cause an infection. You know, anything that happens right. is your body's own natural immune defense. There's no viral participation or disruption whatsoever. So that's why I'm focusing on those. Um, but they found that, you know, if you if you were sick and you get the mRNA vaccines, you actually develop antibodies that might be if, that are way more effective against coronavirus, but they also appears to be effective against all other coronaviruses, including SARS and MERS. So there is some argument to I want to get sick and then get vaccinated. Yeah, I think and we're getting some of that data, right? So those that have yeah. gotten the infection and then, yes, you, you probably have good protection. It's not 100 percent like getting the vaccine is not 100 percent. But if you were to get infection and it, it, get, at least get one dose of the mRNA vaccine. Correct. That actually, yeah, that, that's probably the best case scenario. Yeah, that's correct. That wasn't even a full full battery of the vaccine. That was a single dose. Yeah. So, I mean. And that's, you know, I think that's why people come to Body.io and listen to me, and it's that desire to be superhuman across whatever it is that's important to you. So if you've had COVID, you know, you have absolutely no excuse not to get at least one jab yeah. of a vaccine if you want a superhuman immune response. And and that could have benefits down the road. This, this isn't the last coronavirus disease that I think is going to come out of china um in our lifetime you know it's only going to increase because they keep expanding faster and faster into areas where they're coming into contact with animals they would have never come into contact with and they're doing it with some great frequency so i don't think this is the last thing that's going to hit us uh, yeah, i would agree i mean it might it not and maybe it might be a coronavirus it might be something else too right i mean yeah well they found they just recently found old world hantavirus in China that they didn't know was there. They found an old world strain of um, the bubonic plague. Uh, I was and, say that, yeah. Yeah, and they found a new strain of something else. So China is going to be a hotbed of infectious diseases over the coming decades. Um, we really – and I just want to make that comment. People are trying to decide whether they should blame China or not. Was it in a wet market or was it escape from the lab? It doesn't matter. SARS came from the wet market. They knew that. The international community put pressure on them to close the wet markets so that that never happened again. And China refused because it's a billion-dollar-a-year industry in China, and the government makes a lot of money off of it. They don't need those things for food. So even if it did occur naturally or it was an escape from the lab and they covered that up, they owe some sort of reparations for their irresponsibility. I mean, I, and they're still operating the wet markets. Yeah. That'll never happen. <laughs> yeah. I, I just, I just want to express my pet peeve about that. People are yeah. like, Oh, well, if it came out of the wet market, they're not that guilty. It's like, you know, that is completely asinine. They are a hundred percent guilty because the international community has been trying to get them to shut down those wet markets ever since SARS and the avian flu, you know, I, it's just ridiculous to me. So I would expect something else to come out of China in the next 25 years in our lifetime. Yeah, yeah I wouldn't doubt it. 
Any um, other uh, any other pressing questions that uh, need to be addressed? We've, we've actually covered, covered quite a bit. We didn't. We weren't real specific on the masks. Um, somebody asked, how much do they really decrease the spread? Um, and, and the studies really aren't that great for masks, to be honest. They they've done uh, they did large analysis of the data of the spread of viruses in places that had mask mandates. And it slows down the spread of the virus only by about 10 to 20 percent. Yeah. That, like I said, it's not 100 percent. But again, yeah, it, you know, it's, it's not even it's spectacular, really. I mean, 10 to 20 percent. I mean, it's something. But right. it's and not. You, and if you add, you, know, you add that to distancing or being outside an activity, then, yeah, your chances of getting, you know, sick is going to be significantly less. Yeah. I, you I know, just. Well, in the media, you know, I've been watching some like if everybody would just wear masks, this would end the transmission. It's like, no, I mean, it would make us it, it would make a dent, but it's not going to end anything. Yeah. N- not that my I'm pet, saying like, my, my, my pet peeve is the people that wear their mask and they, you know, it's like half on. Right? Yeah. It's like, yeah. What's the point? <laughs> well, what what I find so interesting is the difference between Serbia, what I experience here and what I hear about in the States, because here we're in the worst COVID infection rates that the country's ever seen. Low, low hospitalization rates like the vaccines working here. That, that's good news. But when the infection rates started going up, people just started naturally. There's no mandate. Stores aren't enforcing it. Nobody's enforcing it. But people just started wearing masks whenever they went to the grocery store or went out shopping. As soon as they go inside, they put on a mask. Nobody mandated it. None of the stores are enforcing it. People just naturally did it. And I think that's great. And, you know, I do it, too. Like, I'm not worried about it really at all anymore. You know, I'm sure my immunity is still pretty significant. I had a a pretty good case of it. But, you know, when I go into any store, I pull, I have a mask in my back pocket all the time. I pull it out. I put it on. Not a big deal. Sometimes the last couple of days I put it on outside, but only because it keeps me much warmer when the air is really cold outside. It's surprising the difference it makes. in cold I, I weather. will. I will. I will second that. Yeah, <laughs> it was so cold in London. I wore my mask outside just because it got me warmer. <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm like, oh, my gosh, man. Why people should wear masks all winter. This is great. Like if and and I'm not kidding, if I don't have if I have a mask on, like internally, I feel warm enough that I don't wear a jacket. I can just wear, you know, my normal hoodie when I go out to walk Cooper. If I have the mask on, I am totally warm. It is amazing how much heat that captures. I think that that covered the mask questions too. Oh, there was the pregnancy question. Somebody asked if it was safe uh, if you're pregnant to get the vaccine. It is. Yeah, I said the short answer was yes. It's completely safe. There's there's a, particularly the mRNA vaccines. There's you know nothing they could do. And and interestingly, usually immunity can be conferred to the unborn child, even though it might not be complete. Um, And you can see that even in normal viral infections, like, for example, mothers who are infected with HIV who have children, their children have highly advanced immune systems. 
which which I've always thought was interesting, but that that carries over for other viral infections too. You know, obviously you don't want to catch HIV just so your child will have a more robust immune system, but you know, there, there's no danger there whatsoever. Yeah, that's been pretty much ferreted out. So, oh, somebody. Well, there was one thing about uh, testicular engorgement because of Nicki Minaj. Is that who said that? Oh, I remember seeing something on the headlines, but I never really like. I never really like read the article. I just saw the headlines, but I never really dug into it. I'm but it, sure I had to do something. Nicki Minaj, and here's another idiot. She's like, "Well, I'm holding reservation on the." on the vaccine until I do research. It's like, are you kidding me? Your highest level of education is college, but it was, it was theater. So tell me where you got the experience in theater college to understand all the niceties and complexities of analyzing statistical data and immunology. Just, you know, let me know. I'd be curious to know where you learned all that. And you might have a legitimate answer, but for some reason, I doubt it. Because her statement was, oh, my cousin's friend got married and he'd gotten the vaccine and he got swollen testicles. Oh, is that what the story is? Yeah. And so that became a big thing for a while. But Uh, I I think that brings up another point of random co-occurrence of events. If you have hundreds of millions of people getting a vaccine – then a great proportion of them are going to have some other malady happen when they get the vaccine that is completely unrelated to the vaccine. You know, that's correlation just, does not prove causation, right? Correct. Yeah. You know, it's just going to happen. It's just statistical likelihood. It should yeah. happen. I mean, who knows? Maybe he went to the strip club and got blue balls before he got <laughs> went to get married. And he was like, oh, my gosh. The blue balls must be because of the of my vaccine. And of course, that's what he's going to tell his wife. So why are you in so much pain? Oh, um, it must have been the vaccine. (laughs) So, you know, it's and and people like and, you know, there's people that would listen to Mickey Nicki Minaj. I have no idea why, but there are people that would listen to her. And I mean, for that reason, that's that's why I try to be as. As scientific and impartial on this stuff as possible so that if you listen to me, you do understand that I have some knowledge base about this. And then, you know, having you on here only adds to the credibility of the discussion. Obviously, you know, you have some direct experience with patients. You know, these are the things you should be thinking about listening to. Like, you know, Tucker Carlson, whether you hate him or love him, he casts a lot of shade on vaccines But an internal memo from Fox was released that said all personnel who want to work in studio have to be vaccinated. So even though Tucker won't say he's vaccinated or not, he's vaccinated because he's in studio working. Right. You know, and and these are the things it's like, you know, just use a little common sense. Um, I mean, I'm pushing no agenda. I like I like. I've said I don't have a dog in this fight. You know, I personally think at this point people should just be like, we're going to live with this. You know, we've got enough people vaccinated that hospital systems are no longer being overtaxed. You know, and, and I considered this from day one to be an, an infrastructure ugh, 
infrastructure problem more than a world health crisis because the problem where people were just getting sick too fast and then we didn't have enough hospital beds for it. Right. That's an infrastructure problem because, you know, in the amount of time that 700,000 Americans have died from coronavirus, which is lamentable and terrible, I, you know, I'm not downplaying those deaths. More than 2 million Americans have died from smoking and obesity related causes. Nobody gives a shit about that. You know, and, and it's yeah, because, I mean, that, yeah, they don't they don't stress the hospital system in the same way. You right. know, we have the infrastructure for those kind of unnecessary deaths, but we didn't have the infrastructure for these kind of unnecessary deaths. Well, those deaths happen faster. So the turnaround time on that bed is faster <laughs> versus, versus the COVID deaths. They just linger for yeah, like weeks I mean, until yeah. they can't breathe anymore, yeah, which is true. It's the, it's the other component to this, right? You know? Yeah. Yeah, that's the pragmatic side of it. Those are the things you have to think about. And that's why I, I think we're at the point where the world just needs to step up and say, look, we've done our best with vaccination drives. Some people are just going to refuse no matter what. And life can essentially return to normal. Yes, we're going to have some stresses on our on our hospital system because of it, um, which which is an interesting thing that Serbia has done because, you know, they have socialized health care here and it, it works pretty well for them. They also have a private system in conjunction with it. Um, and, and it's nice because it keeps the private system's prices really suppressed. So, you know, health care is easily affordable here even if you have to pay for it out of pocket. But what they've done is the vaccine is free. So you, if you get vaccinated and you get sick, you know, they still cover you in the social system, pay for everything. If you refuse the vaccine and get sick with coronavirus, they pay for nothing. You have to pay it all out of pocket. And I think that's a great idea. I think that's what they should do in the United States. Why should somebody paying for their health insurance be paying for the individual who refused to get a vaccine, ended it up in the hospital in the ICU for a month? Like, I'm all about self-autonomy, but I'm also about self-culpability. And if you don't want to take the vaccine and you end up in the hospital ICU for a month, you should just have to pay for that. Your insurance shouldn't cover that. You should have to pay for it. You know, you made that decision. I completely support your decision to not take the vaccine. But I also think you need to be culpable for the outcome. I'm in complete agreement with that, <laughs> to be honest with you. Yeah, I, it's you like, know? you know, yeah, uh, somebody who goes black diamond because, it, it, Primarily because if if you're going in the hospital because you didn't decide to do something that you could have done to prevent being where you were at, that cost of you being in the hospital is not only affecting you, it's affecting everybody because that means my premiums will go up and it could potentially mm -hmm. also take a bed away for four weeks that someone might need. Maybe yeah. a cancer patient, right? I mean – yeah, and, and I'm not saying any of this to chastise people who aren't taking the vaccine. That That's not what this is about in any way. I just think it's common sense behavior. If, if for example, I were going to do some sort of recreational drug that was incredibly damaging, I wouldn't expect anybody else to pay for the damage that I did to, that I knowingly did to myself. 
you know, end of story. And that's my sense of self-culpability. And I think that's what makes societies function effectively is when people do realize that they have some culpability for their decisions. Um, And if they can't realize that on their own, then you can make them realize it with their their finances. I think the only counterpoint is then then where's the where's the line in the sand drawn in terms of self culpability and and you know and for example I mean then where do you draw the line in terms of heart disease that you could have done this so I guess that's the only kind of counterpoint that you may get arguments about. Well, know, what's, what's... so here's my counterpoint to that counterpoint. Right now, you have a very valid argument, and you could not make that distinction in that case. With the vaccines, it's super easy because it's right. it's, it's very cut and dry. That one's easy. But with heart disease, obesity, all of those things, at this point, and we'll just say – we'll just keep it to the United States. The United States government, which means the United States public, unfortunately, has the responsibility of taking care of those people – because they promoted a diet for the last 50 years that caused those diseases. And they promoted weight loss ventures to prevent those diseases that would only make those diseases worse, worse. over time. Yeah. yeah. But Definitely. for future generations, you can start to draw the line. But what is required to draw that line and to make both of those distinctions, the people who got sick because the government made them sick, and the people who can prevent themselves from being sick is you need a foundational theory of what health means, which doesn't exist until I get my book published. Next year. <laughs> Gotta hurry up, man. Yeah, well, I mean, that's going to change everything about the way I talk about everything because uh, everything will be in that book. So I don't have to say, oh, well, you've got to think about this and this and this. It'll all be in the book so I can just always reference that. But for now, I can't do that. Well, I'm chomping on the bit at the first uh, first couple chapters to read, so let me know when you get them done. Yeah, well, there'll be two volumes for that. The first one will be basically foundations for everybody, and then the second one will be sports performance. Cool. Yeah, should be interesting. I don't know. Who knows? Well, it, was, it was fun getting the band back together again. We have to make it probably more of a regular thing, hopefully. I completely agree. Uh, I mean, if anything, just having fluid conversations in English is so salubrious. I can't even, (laughs) there is no other word for it. That is the right word. So, and I'm glad you're doing well. Thanks. Yeah. Things have been pretty good. I mean, all things being, I was going to say, are are you not doing well? (laughs) No, no. I mean, yeah, I can't, I'm like, I'm, we're empty nesters now. My daughter's away. So, Oh, are both of them away? Yeah, so uh, yeah, my one daughter's at ASU and my other one's in Seattle. So, um, excellent. So it'll be nice to see her next week. She's coming back for the holidays. So, um, but you know, like I said, you kind of have to live your life. You have to decide where, at what point, are you going to live your life? And you know, I've kind of made that decision. And um, you know, like we've been doing some traveling, so that's been kind of nice. We're in Hawaii in August visiting our son, and then we've been back and forth to England a couple times. So, um, no, no big hitches. So, yeah, I, I honestly wish governments would just step back and just let this ride out at this point. I mean, there's there's not in my opinion, there's nothing more that can be done that hasn't already be done, been done 
to allow things to just return to normal. It looks like it's kind of going that way anyways. I think all, a lot of these restrictions and, and mandates, not mentioning mandates, but um, rules to leave or enter are starting to drop now anyways. So and I think part of that's just because more people are getting vaccinated. But I think the other part of it is like the cases have been lower and depending on what part of the world you're at, obviously. But yeah, so, you know, as, as that happens, maybe, um, you know, like I said, things may get back more to normal. Yeah, I I unfortunately foresee a potential another year of having to put up with spotty limitations here and there. Oh, for sure. I think that's just because of the I well, I think in terms of vaccinations, it's just there is you look at you know, third world countries are just not even close to where like the United States or European countries are in terms of vaccine uptake. Yeah. So, I mean, Eastern Europe has some of the lowest vaccination rates anywhere. I mean, the only place worse is Africa, where they right. don't have access to vaccines. Yeah. In so in Bulgaria, going to get the vaccine is free. And Bulgaria is, in general, a very economically depressed society. Uh, their average monthly salary in Sofia, the capital city, is only about 300 euros a month, which is about, wow. uh, yeah, which is like $350 a month on average, of course, on average. So very economically depressed. Instead of getting vaccinated, they're so against the vaccine there, they're paying 100 euros for fake vaccination documents. Wow. So they're paying one third of their monthly salary to just not get a free vaccine. I just saw a, a news article about was it Austria, where that if you got vaccinated you got uh, it was like in a brothel. If you came in and got vaccinated, you got a half an hour free with one of the prostitutes. That wouldn't surprise me. I feel like that would be something that you would see more likely in Czechoslovakia or che- Czechia. Sorry, there is no Czechoslovakia anymore. I think it was Austria, though. It, it could be Austria. I mean, they have legal <laughs> prostitution. In Czechia, though, like everything's a, a brothel. I feel like, you know, there were a dozen different places I could have gone into that looked like bars that were actually a strip club brothel in the back. Or, you know, everything, there was just so much of that there, and it, everybody was so casual about it. That's the kind of thing I'd be like, oh, I would totally expect that in, in Czechia. Like, oh, come in, get vaccinated, get a free lap dance. Yeah, it was Austria, actually, is what it was. Okay. Yeah, it it didn't surprise me. It's funny. Prostitution is very, they're very, Europe has a very laissez-faire attitude about prostitution. So it's kind of weird being here in comparison to the U.S. And what's funny is Eastern Europe, Eastern European countries don't. Uh, they're a little bit more like the United States. But what's odd is in the states, in the countries here that don't, that frown upon prostitution or where it's illegal, the age of consent in those countries is usually 14 years old. Oh, my gosh. Isn't that strange? That is really strange. <laughs> I mean, Italy's the worst. Age of consent in Italy is 13. Wow, I didn't know, know that. Yeah, yeah, it's, it kind of, I I just don't under, it, it's kind of weird. 
So I just found that odd, you know, places that have prostitution, they have older ages of consent, but they have prostitution, but places that don't have prostitution have younger ages of consent. Hmm. Yeah, I don't know. That's kind of strange. Yeah. I mean, don't ask why I know that. (laughs) (laughs) Just, you know, increasing your knowledge base. Random info. Well, the funny thing is, like, I know so much random shit people who know me don't find it odd that I know that. No, I, I completely concur. I mean, you do know a lot of random shit. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I, sometimes I wish I could forget things. Oh, definitely seen and heard some things that I would, I would love to get out of my memory banks. But back to, uh, I guess, exiting. I think... I think that pretty much covered, oh, one thing. Do you have a little more time? Yeah, for sure. Because somebody had an interesting question that I thought has a really interesting answer. And that was, why are so many respected doctors and researchers saying things negative about the vaccines and promoting these alternative or or yeah, we'll just call them alternative. These these alternative suggestions like ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine, and they're going against supposedly going against the science of the vaccines and saying the vaccines are terrible and and stuff like that. Like, why are they doing that if the vaccines mm-hmm. are legitimately good? I've actually asked myself that question many a time. I think there's probably several ways I look at it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that. Sometimes people just want to be contrarian for the sake of being contrarian and making them, you know, making them in a, in a more just look at me, look at me type of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I think part of it is financially driven because a lot of these doctors um, that are saying these things are actually running businesses online through telehealth to distribute medications like hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin, and they're making a lot of money by doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think those are two things that I, I see. And, you know, the, the third thing, I, it's, I just, I, I don't know, maybe they just, uh, for whatever reason, they are politically motivated in terms of where their political views are, and it helps drive their contrarianism. I don't know. I, those are the kind of things I've seen, or at least I think about. I don't know if you have any uh, better insights. Well, I've actually been thinking about this for a while because I can't. This question came up before um, I started the Telegram group a couple of days ago, but it came up in the group. And I was thinking about because I want I've been wanting to do this this podcast for a few weeks, actually. um, Before I thought I tried to get you onto it. Um, I mean, we've had providers that are like this, but. I don't think we've ever seen the magnitude of providers that have kind of jumped on this bandwagon that we would see in previous times. That's the thing that kind of boggles my mind. Yeah. So I think it all stems from Andrew Wakefield. No, I, didn't think who, about think, I, didn't, I didn't think about linking that to, to them. Yeah. And it's it's because he was the first test case. Right. He was a respected doctor, a respected researcher. Some lawyers came to him and said, we need data to show uh, vaccines cause autism because we're in the middle of this lawsuit. So he fabricated the data, fabricated the study, 
and all that came out later. Everything was fabricated, and he published that study simply for those attorneys and that court case, and he made you know a shit ton of money for it. And at the right. time, I don't think many researchers would have done that because that's a one-shot deal. If you get caught, your career is over, which is what happened to him. But he was a litmus test for this new social media world where if you go country and even if you lose your license, as long as you can get enough traction, you're going to be a millionaire. He has right. way more money now than he ever had. He bought a mansion in Florida. Um, this is a guy whose decision to lie and defraud the public made him millions of dollars. And I think other doctors see that, too. As long as I can say the right thing with the right voice at the right time, then it doesn't matter if I lose my license because it'll be worth it. And I've seen that. So I, I've seen kind of that attitude like nurses are like, nope, you know, I'm not. And they're posting. And the clue is they're doing everything possible on social media yeah. to get a following. Get the and, TikTok videos know, going, right? And get all yeah. the, get, get as many people to subscribe. Yep. And they, you know, sometimes they lose their job before they, they get good grounding, and I'm sure they regret it. But other times they become the new uh, Surgeon General of Florida. You know, there's a anti-COVID doctor. I can't remember. He was in uh, Detroit, I think, or Detroit area, which, you know, not not the greatest weather to live in and you know board certified uh, medical doctor and he just you know in as many political realms as he could started saying being anti-covid you know it's not really that bad and then when the vaccines came out he became an anti-vaccine advocate he became an anti-mask advocate and he promoted himself around as much as possible on social media and then suddenly scored the job of Surgeon General of Florida. So he got huge, huge financial benefit and political benefit by risking his medical license. And I, like I said, if it hadn't been for Andrew Wakefield and how things turned out for him, I don't think we'd be seeing this at all. Well, of course, it takes social media, too. You know, it's the two yeah. together. Yeah. But, but he was the litmus test that started this trend of doctors um, who basically, you know, had no way to have any kind of national platform or to make, you know, millions and millions of dollars a year just speaking to suddenly create an entirely new lifestyle for themselves if they had the ethical flexibility to do it. And I, you know, I think in today's world, everybody has that kind of ethical. Well, most people have that kind of ethical flexibility, unfortunately. But that's my take yeah. on it. Yeah. I, again, I think a lot of it is financially driven, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's all about the money. It's, you know, I can, I've seen how people can risk their career and lose everything that Andrew Wakefield lost everything only to gain a hundred times more. Um, and I, I think that's very alluring for some of these people. Maybe they don't have the recognition they think they deserve or they're half-assed at their job anyway. And this is an opportunity, or they hate their job. You know, this is an opportunity to 
use your credentials to make it sound like you're you should be listened to you know the whole argument from authority and then leverage that to create a whole new career of just traveling around giving speeches there's there's a she she's a medical doctor she's one of the ones that showed up on the steps of the capitol when they gave that little speech about covid's fake and you can cure it with demon seeds or whatever oh, there was yeah, that yeah, one yeah. crazy doctor she <laughs> was one of the Texas. doctors yeah she was one of the doctors in that group um i can't remember her name but now she's touring the united states and she's charging fifty thousand dollars in appearance oh yeah yeah she like hasn't done any medical work right since. yep yeah so yeah. it's that's why we're seeing so many legitimate doctors going out and trying it out you know and you can tell how much they're willing to risk by how how far in one direction they're willing to go and the only direction that that can make that kind of money at the moment is the direction against vaccines and against all of that stuff and to come up with alternate stories or to present information in a very deceptive way like the ventavia scandal it's like oh my phaser pfizer faked everything look around the world people are still getting infected these vaccines don't do anything it's like well that's not true that's just not true you could talk about the truth of it um and you know i think the more fervent they are the more you can tell how shitty of a doctor that they were you know as far as being respected or whatever in their community is my guess yeah i don't know that's just you know human psychology no i i really do think that probably a lot of it's financially driven you know the thing that boggles my mind is how many people that on social media that you know have kind of followed along over the years have like lost their freaking mind <laughs> yeah know? i know well, <laughs> that's the thing know, that boggles my mind if it hits and you make a shit ton of money, then you can afford to lose your mind. Right. I mean, I guess that's what it comes down to. I mean, look at Jenny McCarthy. You know, she she just seemed like a crazy person when she was talking about autism and vaccines. Mm -hmm. But it made her relevant. And she failed to mention or correlate. You know, she said she got her degree at the University of Google about vaccines and autism. <laughs> but in her autobiography, she talked about when she was at the Playboy uh, Mansion, she did drugs constantly like cocaine, heroin. I mean, it was a litany of drugs. And she talked about how she could go weeks at a time and not remember it because she was on drugs so often. I'm not judging that behavior. That's not what this is about. Like. You know, if that's what she wanted to do at the time, great, good for her, and she was able to do it. But that kind of drug use, opioids, um, cocaine, even marijuana, like significantly increases the chances of having a child that's autistic. I mean, it skyrockets your chances. Why didn't she ever mention that? Like if she her agenda. <laughs> yeah, if she really cared about people and their children, I would think that would be the thing she would mention. She'd be like, you know, I did a lot of drugs, and I learned in my research that that gave me a very high probability of having an autistic child. 
And it could have been the end of it. But no, no, she acted crazy. And then when people started dying or when children started dying from not getting vaccinated, she's like, oh, I never said don't get vaccinated. (laughs) So you said it on Oprah. Yeah. You can't just erase that. Um, So and, you know, she made a bunch of money off of selling alternative shit for that, too, for a while. I think she stopped. Wasn't she like on the View afterwards too? She got one. She got onto one of those talk shows as well. Probably partly yeah, into that job, right? She got on the View for a little while until kids started dying, and then they fired her. <laughs> yeah, she was All trying problem. to revive. Her. Yeah, she was trying to revive her career. It was working. She inadvertently created the Andrew Wakefield effect. Um, you know, she did just just on her own. She did a lot of damage. You know, and she killed a lot of kids, to be honest. But that's a different vaccination story. It's true. (laughs) And I will admit that being anti-vaxxer in that sense of not wanting to get your kids vaccinated or whatever, you know, that kind of thing is in no way related, I think, to people who don't want to get vaccinated for legitimate reasons in this situation with COVID. Like, I think the fears people have and the uncertainties they have with the COVID vaccines, I think, are fairly grounded in reason. Like, not everybody's, but I think a lot of people's are, and and I can at least understand them. You know, yeah, I, I think I I think that uh, yeah, certainly like like for example the myocarditis, right? That is a known potential side effect in younger men, typically. So I think that's something that yeah, you have to have a discussion about. Okay, let's look at the risk and benefit of, you know, yeah. like we talked about myocarditis from the vaccine or from the infection, and you yeah. try to have a, a, a an informative conversation. So yeah, and you have a hundred times the chance of getting it from infection than the vaccine. So that seems like a pretty simple simple decision to me and if you're an athlete you have 400 times the risk so you know i i feel like i would i would hedge my bet with the vaccine in that case i mean that would make common sense yeah yeah if you're an athlete of any type you should just go get the vaccine fuck it like why risk it because if you if you had if the myocarditis was bad enough to to cause permanent damage, you're, you're, if you're a professional athlete, your career might be over. Right. Um, you know, so in that instance, you're risking potentially millions of dollars just because you wanted to talk to Joe Rogan and take his advice. It's like, come on. Yeah. Just, <laughs> I mean, if that's your decision-making ability, just go to any freaking high school and pull out a senior and ask them what their opinion is and go with it. To be fair, he had other advisors as well. <laughs> His medical team. <laughs> oh, well, when he was doing news interviews, he made it a point to say, well, you know, I called Joe Rogan and I asked him his advice. He, he didn't mention his other medical team. Yeah, Joe Rogan and his medical team, apparently, I think is what uh, the consulting uh, committee. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah, and, and and again, I'm not I'm not in any way implying – Joe Rogan's stupid. Like I, you know, if if you listen to some of his podcasts, he asks some surprisingly sharp questions. I mean, they're they're really insightful, and he does it off the cuff. So I mean, the guy's intelligent, but 
I mean, I just don't trust him to be able to understand and analyze statistics. I, I'm I'm sorry. Yeah, I would concur. <laughs> but I definitely wouldn't ask him for medical advice. You know, I I would ask him. It's like, hey, Joe, have you ever stuck yourself with some some vial of something that you were unsure of its origins? Because I bet the answer would be yes. It has to be a yes. There's yes. no way that that the answer and, is no. Yeah, and again, I'm not judging that. I'm all for performance enhancing drugs. What I'm against is people not being able to get medical advice when they administer to themselves. You know, that's what I'm against. Yeah. But but I am I imagine his answer to that would be yes. So the question is like so why are you scared of getting a shot that's been given to billions of people now and we pretty much know the statistical risk. You know, he might he might have gotten permanent heart damage from his infection. Like he doesn't know. Yeah, or maybe he's got lung damage, which yeah. you know occurs, you know, on about I, I there was a German study that they looked at young german male patients who had covid they were pretty much all all of them were not hospitalized but like i think i think 45 or 55 percent of them had abnormal ct scans post-infection yeah i mean these aren't <laughs> and, and with the children thing oh there were a lot of questions about children and vaccines like i think i mean this is again my opinion you know they they're always more careful in testing this stuff when it comes to children in most cases, not all cases. Um, but in this case, they were. And the vaccine is safe and effective for children. And, you know, that you brought it up earlier that people say, oh, well, it's not a big deal in kids. And that used to be true, as you pointed out. And it's no longer true for the last two months in the United States. The sixth leading cause of death in children under 14 is COVID. Which is not trivial. No. Yeah, it is no longer the disease of only the sick and elderly. You know, children are now dying from it. And it's, it's probably the variants. And people don't realize that if you're vaccinated and you can slow slow the transmission and i don't know if this is true anymore because of the delta variant that's kind of changed the game um it seems to be what a lot of these quote-unquote breakthrough infections are so that's changed the rules but in general if you can vaccinate a population fast enough you can cut down on those number of mutations of the virus or cut down on the chances it seems to be mutating once per I was looking at all the mutations that are known of. It's like once per 75 million infections. I think I've seen that number as well. Yeah. So there's a new there's like there's a new Delta mutant that they've been talking about lately. That they've they've been I think uh, A Y. I don't remember the yeah. All the initials, well, th but that's why so many variants have come out of just like India because they have over a billion people right. most of which are not vaccinated and they're just spreading it around each other like crazy it has all kinds of opportunities to mutate um that was another reason to get vaccinated and i and i have to see some of the you know some preliminary studies have shown even if you're vaccinated there seems to be less chance for an occurrence of mutations just because of the way your body handles the virus um but you know, we need more data that. But if that's true, that's another 
really good incentive to get vaccinated so that we don't get a mutation that's something like SARS that kills 40% of the people that it infects. Right. But so I think uh, I think it's pretty balanced conversation from both of us. I don't think either of us are like, oh, go get vaccinated or no, no, you should never get vaccinated. Yeah, I mean, I like I said, I always encourage patients to get the vaccine. Um, I don't force them to get the vaccine and I just try to give them, you know, educate them. Right. That's all you can do. You can't you can lead the horse to water. You can't make a, a horse drink water. So it's the same way with my yeah. patients. Uh, you know, if they're hesitant, then we talk about it. So, yeah. Yeah. I think if it is if it comes down purely to risk assessment and you don't want to consider anything else, only risk assessment. And that includes myocarditis, um, these cytokine storms that have come up about the um the vaccines all of these things yes have been seen in vaccine recipients and the other side of that is all of these things have been seen in people who get the virus and they're seen with a much higher prevalence in people who are infected with the virus as opposed to people who get the vaccine and even later, people who've gotten the vaccine and get infected, they still see a much lower prevalence of of all of these different things. It's just, you know, we don't tend to talk about all of them with the disease, but instead we talk about it with, oh, my gosh, these people got the vaccine and they had this reaction. Like, OK, yeah, two out of 100,000 did. Whereas if you just get the virus, then it's. You know, 75 to 100 people out of 100,000 did. I mean, those are, you know, every time I'm going to gamble with the vaccine, if it's purely risk assessment, if we don't want to talk about anything else. But um, everybody can be like you and be Spock, you know, that's the thing. Well, yeah, we, we talked about that before <laughs> we started recording my uh, like crippling ataraxia um yeah and and i i completely understand and i understand how people's identities get tied into different movements and that makes it hard to go against it like i also understand that and that's why i think you know even if you're making a decision that is adverse to your desire for lower risk you should be asking yourself why you're making that decision. And, and I'm not saying change your mind if you figure out you're doing it because of your ideology or your political identity. But, you know, keep that in mind for future things. You may be making other decisions that are against your best interest because of that identity as well. And, you know, it doesn't hurt to stop and think about that every once in a while. Yeah, for sure. So anything you want to add before we sign off? It's 5.30 in the morning here. Oh, yeah. I should probably let you go back to sleep. Oh, I never went to sleep. (laughs) This this is me at 24 hours of no sleep. That's impressive. Well, you know, you can think Cooper. (laughs) No, I I don't think I have anything else to add. Uh, Hopefully we uh, we can chat again soon. Make yeah, it more regular. yeah. Hopefully we can, yeah, schedule these uh, more regularly. I'm sure everybody would appreciate them. For sure. 
and I'll try right. to get on Telegram and see if I can answer some questions. Yeah, actually, we're everybody will be interested to hear this too. We're setting up a Discord server, so we'll be able to separate out the different topics, so people can go to the room. Okay. Um, yeah, the chat group of the subject that they're really interested in. So of course there'll be a COVID chat room for now. I can't wait till I can delete that one. But there'll be a COVID chat room. There'll be like you know some sort of different weightlifting, performance, strength, all of those kind of things, health, diabetes, you know, so people can go in and, and get information about whatever it is they want. And, and I'll bring in experts for each of those those categories so they can get, get their answers because I just can't get around to all of those categories all the time. Even though, like the old DH, DH forums, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I think it'll it'll go a lot better, though. Yeah, I hope. Um, but we'll see. Cool. All right. So thanks. Uh, I hope everybody appreciates Rocky making time uh, to get on here and answer everybody's questions. And I'm glad to be back. And uh, remember to visit body.io and we will talk to you next time. <laughs>